Hello, and welcome to Unscripted, conversations about sexual and domestic violence, a podcast that features employees and subject matter experts from domestic and sexual violence services and partner organizations to discuss all aspects of interpersonal violence, plus solutions and resources for support for residents of Fairfax County. I'm your host, Kendra Lee. On this edition of Unscripted, I'm talking with Sultan Ludd, Management Analyst with Domestic and Sexual Violence Services and a Volunteer Commissioner for a High School Basketball League, James Walkinshaw, Fairfax County's Braddock District Supervisor, David Aldridge, Senior Columnist of The Athletic, and Keith Reed, Editor of Capital B Atlanta and a former editor of ESPN and Deadspin. And we're going to talk about the intersection of sports, culture, and interpersonal violence. Sultan, James, David, Keith, welcome to Unscripted, and thanks for being on the podcast with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Before we get started, I want listeners to know if they are feeling triggered by anything we discuss, they can call the Fairfax County Domestic and Sexual Violence 24-hour hotline at 703-360-7273. Okay, so sports fans, we have a problem with interpersonal violence, I mean. Right off the top, I'm going to throw a lot of stats at you. Research gathered in December 2023 found NFL players have a domestic violence arrest rate 55.4% higher than the national average. NBA athletes have a domestic violence arrest rate at 38.2% higher than the general population. UFC athletes have a reported domestic violence arrest rate of 750 out of every 100,000 fighters, which is almost five times higher than the general population. But come game day, these players keep playing, whether it's because the violence wasn't reported or suspensions are short or some other crazy reason. But it's not just men. Last summer, a member of the championship winning Las Vegas Aces, WNBA, was barred from the team after her arrest on felony domestic violence charges involving, according to authorities, her spouse. There's also been domestic violence in women's soccer. And this violence doesn't start with the pros. About one in three American athletes between ages 12 and 17 admitted perpetrating at least one act of sexual or dating violence in a 2019 study. And from that same study, of the 214 sexual assault and domestic violence reports involving college athletes, 56% faced no repercussions. USA Gymnastics badly mismanaged years of sexual assaults and rapes of its gymnasts by the doctor on its payroll. And don't get me started on the response to the Spanish soccer chief assaulting one of the women on that country's women's soccer team after their World Cup victory last year, on camera, in front of the world. Clearly, this madness is a global problem. I know we're not going to solve the world's issues today on today's episode. We won't even solve the U.S. problem. But we'll take a small step in addressing it, starting with this conversation. So we're a decade past when Ray Rice punched his then-fiancé, now-wife, in an elevator and got caught on camera. And the NFL made a lot of noise about changing their culture around domestic violence at that time. But when I see this stat, this NFL DV arrest rate at 55.4% higher than the national average, it gives me pause. What really changed or was that noise 10 years ago just lip service or clutching my pearls? Were the numbers even worse 10 years ago and they're better now? I don't I'll I'll take the risk by venturing to be the first person to, to jump in uh, at the time that Ray Rice happened. Um, I was still at ESPN and I spent a considerable amount of time um, also going on CNN. I think I was on CNN probably every day for almost a month talking about Ray Rice. 
um, and the allegations against him and how the NFL handled it. Um, one of the things that I said at that, at that time, and I want to be clear and take a step backwards when I, when I say this, is that nothing that I am saying is in defense of the NFL or, or, or professional athletes who are accused of domestic violence. But one of the things that I said mm-hmm. that I said at that time is that domestic violence is never a problem that is specific to a particular workplace or profession. And what happens in the sports world, we have to remember, is a is 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 a prism through which we need to look at the larger society, right? So that it when it when it happens with an NFL player or an NBA player or or someone on the US women's national team or whatever the, the, the case may be, what you're looking at is a famous person. And we know that fame, especially fame through athletics, conveys a certain amount of privilege. And when you have privilege, you have the protection that goes along with that privilege, regardless of what the infraction is, whether that infraction is a traffic accident as a result of a DUI, or whether that privilege is protecting you from domestic violence charges. And so we need to look at, so one of the, one of the things that we're seeing is what that was happening in sports is the conveyance of privilege upon really talented, really wealthy, really famous people who are then protected by leagues that are run by also really maybe less famous, but certainly even wealthier, more privileged people. Uh, and they will, and, and privilege will almost always seek to protect those who, who generate more wealth from, from that privilege, right? So that's, so that's one piece of it. The other piece of it that I, that I talked about is, that, that I've always talked about is where are the other spaces in, in our society that mirror the, the level of privilege that is afforded to professional athletes when they're, when they are accused or convicted of, uh, sexual assault or, Domestic violence. Um, if you look at what's happened in the in the Me Too movement, which followed what was going on with, with Ray Rice, we found out that, especially in the entertainment business, but also in American politics and in American in the, the the corporate suites of the United States, there were bad actors all over the place who were not getting a, getting a, attention for what they were doing. Because largely their privilege shielded them for for so long. Uh, when you look inside of police departments, uh, the, the the rate of accusations of domestic violence for police officers in this country are astronomical, uh, and and yet you rarely see police officers prosecuted for domestic violence. So again, I say that as a scene setter. I don't say that it, it, to to protect any professional athlete or to protect the world of sports, uh, which is the lens through which I've seen this issue. But I do say it to say that um, I always try to make sure that, that we understand we have this conversation about domestic violence in sports and why it's so prevalent in sports, that the conversation that I believe that we're having is around why we allow privilege, the privilege of wealth, the privilege of fame, the privilege of, of athleticism um, to be a protector or a shield against abusers in any segment of our society, whether it's sports or or wealth or politics or or whatever the case may be. Um, 
So I, 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 I start with, re, with the reframing of the conversation around privilege, because I think it gives us a basis by, by which we can have a conversation about how do we eradicate domestic violence and sexual violence across our society? Because it's not going to go away just in sports. If you were to make it go away in the NFL, <laughs> it would still exist in so many, in so many other places where the privilege have, have these shields. Can I, can I jump in on that? And, um, thank you, Keith. I mean, first, I feel somewhat inadequate here. I'm, I'm, I'm with three, three guys who know exponentially more about sports and sports culture, uh, than, <laughs> than I do. Um, but I, I, I'm just paid to pretend like I do. <laughs> that's good enough. That's worked out pretty well for you. Um, yeah. I'm going to claim myself as just being a fan of James, but go ahead. I'll support you and I got your back um, too. So yeah. Yeah. I really agree with, with everything that, that Keith said. I mean, I think especially when you're talking about professional athletes, um, you know, wealth and fame provides a layer of, of protection that, that maybe others don't benefit from. But, but I do think it's an important question. Um, and I, I think Kendra asked me, me to participate because I have in, in some forums, Kind of shared my my history of you know not not a unique history at all but but growing up and spending a lot of time in um, male dominated spaces right so uh, my dad worked in the construction industry so I grew up on on construction sites which when I was doing it was was one hundred percent not ninety nine percent but one hundred percent men and then you know playing sports growing up and and through college and, and I think it it is a valid question. Um, do those types of male dominated spaces, uh, create the, the potential, uh, for a, an atmosphere that lends itself to, um, uh, behaviors that are more likely to manifest themselves in, in domestic or sexual violence. Right. And, and I, I would pose it as a, as a question. I, I think it's a valid question and maybe. Maybe it's, it's a risk. Um, you know, I also experienced a lot of the positive aspects of, of those cultures, right? And, and growing up in a place where, where there were a lot of positive male role models, you know, to, to help me grow and, and learn as, as a man. Um, but, but I think it, I think there's a risk for it cutting both ways. Um, uh, whether that's in police departments that are male dominated or a professional football team that's male dominated or a construction site that's male dominated. Um, in those spaces, you, you can sometimes see a culture of competition, not just on the playing field, but competition around, uh, physical exploits or sexual exploits. And I think it's a valid question. Do, do, does that lend itself to a higher rate of domestic and sexual violence? I don't pretend to have the answer, but I think it is an important question for us to ask. Yeah, I, w- I would say um, to speak to both what James and Keith said and to, to your question, Kendra, that there is certainly a different uh, patina with regard to sports figures and the difference between say Ray Rice and Harvey Weinstein, for example, is that nobody emulates Harvey Weinstein as a person, right? Like nobody wants to be Harvey Weinstein when they grow up. Um, That's not there. The aspect of heroism in sports 
tends to make it difficult to accept that our heroes sometimes do things that are awful, right? I mean, I think whether it's, again, Ray Rice, who I will give Ray Rice credit for one thing. He has actually attempted to try to change his behavior over the years and become an advocate and speak publicly about domestic violence, um, much in the way that Michael Vick, after his issues with dogs, became a very strong, staunch supporter of you know, the ASPCA and other organizations that supported, um, you know, treating animals better. And I'm not trying to equate people with animals. Please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm saying people do have the capacity to change. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. not every person acting the exact same way they acted before. But in sports, heroism makes it difficult for us uh, or for at least a great portion of our society to be able to hold both things in one hand or in two hands, which is you can love Kobe Bryant as a player and think he was one of the greatest players of all time. He also was accused of rape and to the point where he had to put out a statement acknowledging that the person that accused him of rape thought she was raped. And that she wasn't crazy and that she wasn't, you know what I mean? So these things do come together, but it's difficult, especially in sports, because we tend to hero worship athletes. We tend to believe them to be supermen that that are capable of so much on the field or on the court or on the baseball diamond. We don't, it's difficult to then say, but they also are people who make bad choices sometimes. And when you're dealing with that level of worship on top of what Keith talked about, the fame and the money and the power and the privilege, all of those things, it gets very difficult for us as a society, I think, to accept the fact that our sports athletes across the board, it's not just one's league, one sport. It's not pro or amateur. It's not high school or college. It's all of it, right? all of it. We have a problem throughout athletics, but it all stems from, I think, well, it stems from strong. It's exacerbated by the notion that we know these people and we so value what they can do on a field that we, it's hard for us to reconcile that with them making horrible personal choices and putting their hands on women. It's very difficult. So it's why when Jim Brown, not to speak ill of the dead, but I'm going to do it anyway, died last year. His obits didn't really talk much about the DV allegations. He wasn't convicted of any major crime, but the DV allegations that plagued him while he was playing. After he died, everybody was saying, like, don't talk about that. It's not the time, right? That's what's always said. This isn't the time to talk about that, but it's always the time to talk about, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I just wanted to try to jump in and, and make a few points because everyone that all the statements that everyone has said are, are very valid at this time. So I look at it at the perspective of um, just to kind of piggyback on what David said about the fact that these athletes and figures are just so visible. And with social media, to me, and that's, that's I think it's a, a big trigger in terms of them being able to follow these individuals. And I think they really personalize it to the fact that with some of the average citizens sometimes feel like they actually know these individuals, even though they may not actually have a personal relationship with them. I mean, you can look at 
Instagram and some of these other platforms and some of these athletes have millions, not thousands, millions of followers. And you have that many people watching each and every step that they do. It's easy to influence behaviors of the average person. And especially if they're actually performing well, it's easy for us to have this feel good story about them thinking that, okay, they're doing this and this and it's actually benefiting maybe a team that I'm following. It makes me feel good and I'm uh, it's going to influence the way I actually view their behaviors, whether they're positive or negative. So I think mm-hmm. that plays a big factor into how the, the overall perception in terms of when these types of incidents occur. Sometimes people already have these pre- preconceived notions about these athletes and they already predetermined that, okay, well, I'm going to give them a pass just because I, I follow them and I know them and I think they're okay. And I just think that overall, when I was looking at the stats, um, the first thing I thought was, is this really getting worse or is it becoming more public? Because, you know, everywhere you go now, if, if the average person does something, the first thing people do is pull out their cell phones and, and they start recording it. So in right. 2002, 2003, that probably wasn't the case, even though those situations still could have been happening. They just weren't being recorded or publicized. So I think it's important to kind of understand, are we really trending in the wrong direction or are we just becoming more public about the behavior that already exists in our societies? So. And, and I think that one of, one of the things that we also need to talk about to to jump back to one of David's points is that the, is the hero worship also intersects in a lot of, in a lot of different ways when you talk about professional athletes. So when Kobe Bryant passed away and Gail King had done an interview with, I can't remember who, who, who was David? Do you remember that, that the, the interview that Gail King did with the WNBA player? I can't remember who was it. Was Lisa Leslie? Did she oh, interview? I, I can't remember. I want to say, we'll, we'll say Lisa Leslie, but, you, but, you, but, but so Gail King had done, had done an interview with a, with a, a WNBA athlete, very prominent. I believe it was, it was Lisa, but I'm not certain. Um, and Gail King broached the topic of Kobe Bryant's sexual assault allegation that happened when he was er- earlier in his, in his career. And there was an immediate reaction on social media, much of which came from, from black women, from black men, but also from, from some black women who were offended at the fact that Gail King asked the question. And it was the same thing that David talked about, of like, why now? Why bring that up now? He just, he just died. But the reality is, but, but we don't, we don't do that. You don't, you don't say why now when you're talking about how great he was as a basketball player. You don't talk about why now <laughs> you talk about the, when you talk about the game where he scored 81. You don't say why, what, like, we don't, you don't talk, say why now when you talk about how many rings he won, right? We only, you want to wall off that part of, of a person's, uh, legacy or of a person's, uh, of, of a person's, uh, you know, history. And, and the reality is a person's legacy is made up of everything. It's made up of, every, of all they did. It's made up of the good and, and the bad. So yes, he's one of the greatest basketball players that ever lived, but he did do a thing. Or was at least accused of a thing that was very that was very public, um, that we can't ignore, and it was a and it was a pretty heinous thing that he that he was accused of. Well, so let's deconstruct why we get to that place. Why do we get to a place where we think that you have to wall off that we ask a journalist, somebody whose job it is to ask questions, not to ask that question? And the reason we get to, we get to that place is because. There's a particular kind of hero worship that happens, especially when you're referring to to black men, right? So for many of these professional athletes, 
for many, for unfortunately for many members of our community, the professional athlete becomes in some and substance the most somehow relatable, even though very few people of any color or, or stripe have the level of talent of a Kobe Bryant or of any professional athlete. Somehow we view the professional athlete as the most relatable person who, who operates in a privileged space to us. And because we view that person as the most relatable person who operates in a privileged space, we want them to be protected. We want them to have a layer. We, we kind of acquiesce to that layer of privilege, that layer of coverage that, that, that they have. And we don't want those things to be talked about because it somehow is viewed as sullying the reputation of one of our best representatives to the public. And I think that that ultimately does a disservice to anybody even to the fan who wants to protect the athlete, because you fan who wants to protect that athlete probably know somebody in your personal life who has been assaulted. Um, you probably you probably have a closer personal relationship to somebody who's been assaulted than you do to anybody who's ever dribbled a basketball for money. Um, and there's, there's this there's this you know odd kind of. Um, disassociation that we that we do from from the reality of what we live next door to then the connection we make to the person who who lives in this exalted space of being an athlete okay i'm going to interrupt here to give a reminder that if today's topic has you feel in some kind of way or if you've been impacted by interpersonal violence call the fairfax county domestic and sexual violence 24-hour hotline at 703-360-7273 getting back to the topic i don't want to you know pin this on on one race of athletes or even say all athletes are bad because that's not what we're trying to mm -hmm. say today but if we have you know these these widespread depressing numbers it's the culture which james kind of hinted to if if a spanish soccer chief can assault someone on camera and everybody says, but that wasn't assault. If we've got 12-year-olds saying they've committed dating or sexual violence, 12-year-olds, it's the culture, right? So can we talk about that a little more, Jim, James, and, and, and yeah. the rest of you guys? Yeah, and, and I think, um, you know, one thing I would say, I think we're in a really important um, moment uh, in, in, in the country, in the world, perhaps, uh, for, for men and, and for young men. Um, I think we're at a really challenging moment where the kind of, you know, traditional view of masculinity and what it means to be a man, right? And the, the toxic elements of that, uh, are being discarded. A lot of the institutions and structures that at least in the 20th century, especially gave young men, uh, not all young men, but, but young men, uh, a path, um, a path to kind of fulfilling the, that traditional gender role, right? Whether that was union jobs or manufacturing jobs or fraternal organizations that build bonds and connections between men. Uh, a lot of those are gone. Um, and we, we have, Wholesale as a culture said, we're going to reject those traditional gender roles, or at least we're going to try to. And that is an incredibly, has been an incredibly positive thing. But I think what we have failed to do maybe is to replace that traditional role 
our view of, of, of masculinity and what it means to be a man uh, with, with a modern updated version of it. And we've kind of created a little bit of a vacuum. And when you have a vacuum in culture, uh, somebody's going to come along to fill it. Uh, and I think one of the things we're seeing, you know, right now with a lot of, a lot of boys and, and young men is, you know, really malevolent actors, some outright misogynists, some thinly veiled misogynists on social media are filling that vacuum and telling a lot of boys and young men what it means to be a man. Uh, and it's a lot of negative stuff, uh, that, that I think can lead to and engender. Uh, violence and a kind of culture that, that we don't want to see. So I think, you know, one role perhaps that, that sports and athletes can play, especially the vast majority of them who, who aren't committing domestic and sexual violence, right? Uh, is, is demonstrate that, uh, demonstrate a positive version of what it means to be a man in America, uh, whether you're an athlete or not, right? Someone who, who, protects and takes care of their family and their community and treats everybody with respect and dignity. Um, maybe others can come up with a better, a better version of it. But I think it's really, really important that we model that and communicate that, uh, to boys and young men. And, you know, if there's something that the, the NFL and other professional sports leagues maybe can do more, I, I mean, yes, absolutely. Someone who commits domestic violence or sexual violence should, should be suspended. But I think you can have more of an impact by telling those, those positive stories of the men in the leagues who are doing the things we want them to do mm-hmm. and are treating women and everybody the way that, that we want them to be treated. And, and I, and I think more of that can, can help us fill that, that vacuum of, you know, the definition of, of masculinity and, and maybe more than the lead, the professional leagues. It's people like like Sultan who are working with kids in the community, you know, do, doing that every day. I mean, I think that's what we as men have to step up, step up and do, because there are really powerful negative forces trying to take men and boy, young men and boys in, in, a, in another direction. And if we don't stand up to that, uh, we're going to be in a bad place. And the numbers you cited, Kendra, will get worse. So should we be starting this peewee leagues younger? When should we be starting this education? I mean, just based on my experience, it, it just seems like it's um, a lot of it's based on the interactions that these um, young kids are having. And a lot of it, their first exposure to sometimes having an adult role model is through playing uh, a team sport, for example. So sometimes, you know, during the course of their life, they may not have that individual in their day to day life that they can kind of look up to as a role model. But when mm-hmm. they get their first exposure, whether they're playing soccer, basketball or whatever sport they decide to play. Sometimes that's their first interaction to having a positive male figure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm around basketball a lot and, and I can just say most of the patrons are women. So whether the, the male figures just aren't present in their lives or they're involved in other activities, I can't really confirm or say what the reason is. But I think that I've seen it more and more where a lot of kids are spending more time by themselves, which means they're, they have an option or what's actually available to them is more time on the internet, on these other mm-hmm. um, platforms that are really influencing them. And if they do see something or they see these images, for example, like we talked about the soccer coach, there's no one really there to explain to them to say, yeah, this is what happened. And this is how, how the other person felt. They see the image, they see the action, but they don't really have an explanation to go along with that. 
So at that point, they're kind of forced to come up with their own reasoning or they talk to their friends and say, well, maybe this is what happened and, and this is the way it's supposed to be. But no one, there's no one really to kind of instruct or to tell them exactly what happened and maybe explain to them what the definition of assault is. So I think as a society overall, we can definitely do better. But even um, kind of going back prior to the to COVID, so many families spent so much time away from home, whether it's commuting to and from work in general. And kids, a lot of times, are forced to, to, to a certain degree, raise themselves. And so their parents are really available to be there to provide some type of support. And, you know, kids are spending more time away from home than at home. If you look at the course of the week, whether they're at school or, or involved in some other activities. So it's almost like a fraction, the portion of time that actually families are spending with their children is, is reducing, which means the other factors in terms of things that are able to influence your children are increasing. So we just have to be mindful and, and, and really kind of hone in on the behaviors that are, that are, um, young men in particular are being exposed to and whether or not we actually have someone there to help reinforce and explain to them some of the things that they're seeing and experiencing on a day-to-day basis. So, yeah, I I think you're both correct. And and one of the things that this I know the professional leagues struggle with is that kind of messaging that James talked about, which is you know here's a person doing it the right way, and they just they've always struggled with that. It's for whatever reason they can't really figure out a campaign that accentuates what people should be doing as opposed to what they're not doing. In 2020, they made some inroads with regards to, they, they found the issue of voting rights, for example, to be an issue that players were concerned about and they pushed in that direction and they actually got some traction, I think, in, in certain areas. They got all of the NBA arenas, for example, to become voting centers on election day that were not available in previous elections. Now, subsequently, a lot of states have closed those locations. <laughs> That's another story. Um, but yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, but it is, it's possible is the point. They can find something, but for whatever reason, I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to assign malevolent intent to the leagues. I don't know why they don't do it. I just know that they don't do it to the degree that they could do it, make it like, like the NFL is big, huge, has an enormous association with the military. They have they have leaned into it. They are intentional about connecting themselves to the military. They could be just as intentional connecting themselves to making their players available to talk about domestic violence and sexual violence and why, what players can do and what people can do um, to um, to help alleviate some of that, and they don't do it. And I don't, I don't know that it's because they're scared of the issue. I just may, I don't know. I'm not going to ascribe motives to them. I just know they don't do it, and they have incredible resources to be able to do it. I think, I think it's a third rail, specifically for the NFL, but also for many of these leagues, because it's a difficult thing to get right without stepping in a pot. Uh, or at least they've found it to be a difficult issue to get right. And you'll say, well, clearly there's a right and there's a wrong on this, right? Like the domestic violence and, and sexual violence are, are wrong. Not doing domestic violence and sexual violence are right. How could there be, how could there be a pothole about this, right? But if you, but let, let's go back to, let's go back to Ray Rex. Let's go back to what happened with Ray Rex. Remember that the first we heard about Ray Rice 
was the, the lasting image we have of Ray Rice is what happened in the elevator and the video of it. But remember right. when that story broke, we did not have video. Mm-hmm. There was there was no video. The NFL had already had heard had had seen video that the rest of the world didn't know about. Mm-hmm. When the NFL, having seen the video, having knowing that the video existed, but before the video was public, handed down a punishment that it believed was appropriate for Ray Rice in the absence of the video having gone public. Mm-hmm. When the video went public, people who do what David and I do for a living start writing about and talking about publicly what the NFL got wrong, right? We get to go back and have and have the lens of history in that instance, recent in that instant what recent history, what was it, a week or two weeks or something like that had gone by between the time that the story broke right. and the and the video came out. Um and then we get to go back and poke holes in the NFL's disciplining of Ray Rice with the benefit of having only seen the video, not having not the process to get that the NFL followed. Keep in mind also that the NFL is governed by competing interests. There is the interest of the owners, the billionaire owners who want to protect their investment. And these are these are by definition all apex capitalists. At the end of the day, they've gotten to where they are by by making lots of money Usually in the absence of having to make any com- any sort of commentary on social issues whatsoever, except when they endeavor to be philanthropic. That's, that, that's one. Now they're trying to protect their grandest capitalistic interest in the NFL or the NBA or whatever the case is. But then they have labor and they primarily interact with labor vis-a-vis collective bargaining agreements that stipulate very specifically disciplinary processes that are extrajudicial. So Roger Goodell can only do certain things, he's empowered to do certain things, but the things that he's empowered to do, he does in the absence of any trial court, of any testimony. Sometimes there's a, there's there's an arbitrator that's involved depending on what the situation is as as it's described in, in CBA, right? So there's all these things that are, that are happening that present, that prevent, excuse me, that present opportunities for a Roger Bell or an Adam Silver or whoever the case is to, to step into a, a, a pothole when handing down discipline because I've got to follow the CBA. But what's in the CBA may not, might not cover, and that was a big issue with Ray Rice. It's like, there's nothing in the CBA that actually covers how I should adjudicate this. And so he went from an insufficient punishment to basically the death penalty for Ray Rice's career, when the reality is, to David's point earlier, that Ray Rice has now become an an anti-domestic violence advocate for what that's worth. And so years on from what happened with Ray Rice, maybe the answer is, there should have been a very harsh punishment that was worse than what than what the NFL originally did, but that was less mm-hmm. than this person never playing football again. Because now you don't have a person who's become who's who's become by all accounts an advocate against exactly what he did and who's done everything possible to atone for what he did. That person's now not on the field. That person's not under the NFL's auspices anymore. So there's all these different ways that they can 
you know, that, that, that they can misstep and twist their ankle and just get caught up in the, in the, in, in something that they just don't know how to, how to handle. And at the end of the day, the NFL and all of its owners really just want to make some money. <laughs> and, and, and like, if I don't have to get involved, they, 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 if they never had to deal with another Ray Rice, if they never had to be confronted about an individual situation that was public like that again, I'm certain they would, they would just as soon not have anything to say about it, let alone try to figure out the best practices for dealing with it. I agree. Well said. Thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> this has been a really informative and instructive episode. And on that note, that'll do it for this episode. <laughs> thanks for listening. And thanks for joining me, Sultan, Supervisor Walkinshaw, David, and Keith. If you or someone you know has experienced interpersonal violence, call the Domestic and Sexual Violence 24-Hour Hotline at 703-360-7273. That's 703-360-7273. Or visit fairfaxcounty.gov and search for Domestic and Sexual Violence. To listen to other county podcasts, visit www.fairfaxcounty.gov podcasts. Unscripted Conversations About Sexual and Domestic Violence is produced by the Fairfax County, Virginia Government.